Well, if you've been joining us at Encounter Church for the, um, the last few weeks, you notice that we are in a, uh, a series on the Psalms called Songs of the Heart, where we're looking at a bunch of um, different songs and how these psalms help us to express emotion and help us find um, different ways and avenues to express ourselves before God and how to do that properly. Um, this morning, I am particularly very excited to be preaching because this morning we're going to talk about worship. And my job here is worship pastor. And this morning, I want to show you that my job involves a lot more than just playing a guitar and singing. But worship is much bigger than just music. So I'm very excited to stand up here and talk about this and tell you what the scriptures are saying about how to worship God and what worship is. So I invite you to turn on the back of your worship flow sheets this morning, and we're going to read the words of Psalm 95. Um, An ancient practice of the church was that whenever scripture was read, that the people would stand. And I want to do that this morning as we think about worship. So I invite you all to stand as I read through our scriptures this morning. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did that day at Meribah as you did that day at Massa in the desert, in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. You may be seated. I have to admit to you that I'm not much of a dancer. My hips um, were not exactly blessed with the genes of a Latin pop singer. (laughs) But one song that will always pull me out on the dance floor is called the Cupid Shuffle. (laughs) Some of you, most of you seem to know that the Cupid Shuffle has become the premier wedding song to get a bunch of people who aren't normally dancing out to the dance floor and having a good time. And what makes the Cupid Shuffle so wonderful is that when you and your other dance challenge friends finally get out on the dance floor, the DJ almost gives you like an instructional guide for how to do the dance as you're participating in it. But then there's also some room to improv as you are allowed to walk it out yourself as you make one of the turns. What's so great about the Cupid Shuffle when it comes to dancing for me is that when I have to do something that's daunting or it's a little bit outside of something I would normally do, I want something that's going to kind of help me along. I want some sort of how-to guide that's going to help me turn two left feet back properly into a right foot and a left foot. And maybe the topic of worship is one of those things that is a little bit daunting for you. Maybe you're not exactly sure how to approach it. Because in one sense, you want to get one foot out there on the proverbial dance floor, but you're not quite sure how to get involved. You want a how-to guide to help you into it. 
Or maybe worship has become one of those words that is so distorted and taken out of context that whenever it's used, you don't even know what to make of the word anymore. Psalm 95 is going to be our how-to guide to think about worship. Now, as we come into this message this morning, I need all of you to come into the word worship with a blank mental slate. I need you to forget about worship as termed in musical style. I need you to forget about worship as done with proper elements. I need you to toss out any big theological jargony words that you might associate with it. And I especially need you to let go of past church experiences you've heard about or have been a part of that have distorted this word worship in what they might call a worship war. Because this message is not about any of those things. What we're going to see is that Psalm 95 teaches us what worship is, why we should worship or why we can worship, and then how we can worship. That is our goal for this morning. The church um, throughout the ages has always used Psalm 95 as the premier teaching text on worship. And if we're coming into this message this morning and we're saying, blank mental slate, okay, what is worship? It's going to be helpful for us to set down an opening definition of what this word means. So at its most basic fundamental level, we could say that worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being. Let me say that one more time just to make sure we get it. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that energizes and engages your whole being. With that being said, we now have a a, a general overarching question of What are we supposed to worship? What is that something that we ascribe ultimate value to? And this is where we turn to the words of the psalmist. Right away in verse 1, he says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. The Lord. The Lord is the object of his worship. We come before the Lord. And in this text, it's, it's very interesting and it's very significant to note that the word he uses for Lord is a Hebrew name of the utmost significance. The word he uses is Yahweh, the one who saves. This is a term that God directly gave to his chosen people, the Israelites, to define who he was. It set him apart from all other gods. And so the psalmist brings us right into it. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, to Yahweh. He is the one that we worship. And he does that by taking some sort of inventories of what God has done. And we'll take note of that as we move through this psalm. I'm sure most of you have um, seen the Antiques Roadshow, right? Um, you, you can't go to Grandma's house and flip through her five TV stations without having to settle on the Antiques Roadshow. So we all know the basic premise, right? Um, Betty has an old vase that has been sitting on her mother's shelf for years and years. Well, her mother has now passed on, and she's left with the dilemma of what she should do with the vase. Should she throw it away? Well, her mother had held on to it for so many years. Maybe it's worth something. So the Antiques Road shows in town. She brings it in, and as she walks in, a rare art collector sees her and immediately runs over to her and starts to ask her a bunch of these questions. Um, Where did you get this vase? 
Um, do you know where your mother got the vase? Do you know anything about the history that goes along with this type of, of, of vase? And then he goes on to say to her, well, this vase was made during this time period. And it's so interesting to note that it was made in this city by this manufacturer. And the most beautiful thing is that it is one of a limited amount of vases that was ever made. And then we have the hinge question. Do you know how much this vase is worth? And the person always says, no, I have no idea. Totally clueless. And then the, uh, the rare art dealer might say, conservatively, at auction, a vase like this might bring thirty to $50,000. Well, the vase has now become a vase. <laughs> it's no longer lightly and haphazardly dragged along by Betty back into the back of her closet. No, it is proudly displayed on a shelf in a glass case in her home. She calls all of her friends to tell them what a great treasure she has. Betty has realized the significance and worth of the vase, and it has transformed her view of it. That is the core of what Psalm 95 is saying about worshiping the Lord. When we start to see what the Lord has done in our lives, namely that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to set us free of the bondage of sin and guilt that he opens up a relationship with us, a saving relationship. When we start to see what sort of value that holds in our lives, the Lord is going to transform us from the inside out, and we will place him as the number one ultimate value in our lives. Tim Keller, a famous pastor from um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York, says that the difference between a limp-along life And a transformed life is a life of worship. A life of ascribing ultimate value to the one who saves. That is what worship is. But then the psalmist doesn't waste any time in bringing us into exactly why we should worship the Lord. If you turn back to your worship flow sheets, verse 3 and verse 7. I want you to grab your pen And circle the word for in each of those verses. Uh, Verse 3, verse 7, circle the word for. In verse 1, the the psalmist gives this beautiful call into worship. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Why? Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry ground. The Lord is the author, creator, and sustainer of the universe. We come and we sing and praise him and shout with anthems of joy because he upholds this world that we live in, and we are a part of that world. And in verse 6, he brings another call into worship. Come, let us bow down in worship. Why? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Not only is he the creator, sustainer, and upholder of the universe, but he cares for each one of us intimately. As a shepherd would watch over his flock, so the Lord watches over us. He is by our side in the darkest of nights. He walks beside us in the happiness and the joy of any daylight or any joyous season of life. 
This is why we worship the Lord. But maybe some of you are kind of like, well, those reasons are okay. I'm not sure if I quite buy into it. Or maybe even you are kind of skeptical about the whole idea of saying that you do worship something. Do you really want to go up to someone and say, I worship the Lord? Is that something that really defines your life? Maybe it seems a little bit strange. But the truth is that each and every one of us worships something. We are all ascribing ultimate value to something in our life, whether it be the Lord or whether it be something else. And with that, when we start ascribing ultimate value to something else, the psalmist is saying that those other things are going to distort our lives. When we change up our value system and make things done on our priority, we're going to be distorted. We're going to be going the wrong way. But we're not alone in that struggle. In a um, seemingly dark turn of the psalm, the last three verses, verses 8 through 11, they don't seem to make much sense. You have this beautiful anthem of praise, and then you have the last line saying, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Oh, what kind of downer end line is that? But this is a very important example of the psalmist telling us what exactly will happen when God isn't our priority. This is um, taken from a story found in Exodus 17. Um, God has just taken the people from the land of Egypt out of the bondage of slavery, and he is leading them along to the promised land, a land of rest that he has set out for them. And as the Israelites are, are going through the desert, they start complaining, and they start to change things up because they no longer want the Lord to be in charge. They want to start calling the shots. And so they complain, and they grumble, and they rebel. And finally, the Lord allows them to have what they want. He basically says to them, this is the premise of the story, is that if you want to do things your way, if you don't want to trust in me, if you think that human power and human sovereignty are going to win in the end, then I'll allow you to live that way. And instead of the Israelites moving on to a land of rest, they had to wander in the desert for 40 years because they misplaced their priority. And doesn't that ring true in our own lives? If we misplace our priorities, if we're seemingly running and chasing after anything else in our lives, are they really providing rest? If we're continually chasing more and more work without any way to let go of it, are we ever going to get as far as we want to be? If we keep chasing the next dollar every single day, are we ever going to have enough? Is there, any, is there going to be any rest or satisfaction from those things? Are we really going to find true rest in them? No. The question that remains for us then is what are the things in your life that are distorting your value system? What is it that's pulling your heart, your mind, and your soul away from the one who has promised to bring you into rest as long as you rely on his power and his sovereignty? What is it? The thing about these, what we could call counterfeit gods or um, these cookie-cutter gods of saying, well, I like the idea of God, but I'm not exactly sure if I like this, so let me put it 
in a box or let me figure it out my own way. The problem with doing that is that when we do these things or we chase after them, they're going to let us down. They will not forgive us when we don't achieve what they want. But when we reassign our value system, when we place our ultimate trust in the Lord and what he has done in our lives, we will finally see that the Lord is going to be by our side when we get him. But he's also going to forgive us when we fail him. And we will fail him. But unlike other gods we might chase after in our lives, he's going to pick us up and say, you're mine and I'm beside you. That's what Psalm 95 teaches us about why we should worship. And finally, we come into part three. The psalmist has told us what worship is by telling us who we worship. He has outlined for us the reasons why we would ascribe ultimate value to the Lord. And now he gives us the how we come into worship. And this is so applicable for our lives. And it, as a worship pastor, to stand up here and talk about this is what really gets me going because this is part of my job. This is what I get to lead each and every one of you in every Sunday when I stand up here. And I want to outline four ways that this psalm teaches us how to worship. First, we worship together. Did you notice how many times, as we read through this psalm, did you notice how many times the word us or some other collective noun was used? Um, Let us sing for joy. Um, The Lord is the great God, the great King. He is our God. We are his people. We do not worship as just one person, but we come together as a community. That's why we gather in this place each and every week to sing, to pray, to listen to a message, to grow together as a people. Because the psalm calls us into that. Individual worship is still extremely important. It is part of our Christian walk to find God's will for our life through prayer and to study the scriptures on our own. But that's not the whole of it. Another reason why we come together as a group of people, not just because the psalm says to, but because we learn more about who God is when we worship together as a community. For instance, as we walk in here and as we sing a song, you might come across some lyrics and you might say, you know, I've never thought about that before. I've never seen God put that way, but it makes sense. And so you start building a foundation through the songs you might be singing. Or you come together and you hear a message and it talks about something that you weren't quite sure how to understand. But then it makes sense to you, so you keep building that brick, building the brick foundation. But then you see and you talk to other people who are gathered here with you, and you start to hear stories about what God has done in their lives. You start to go back and forth about how you see God moving and acting in this world, and you share and you empower and you encourage each other by the truth that you're giving one another about who your God is, who our God is. Worshiping together cannot be taken lightly. Next, worship must be rooted in the truth, the capital T, truth. In verse 3 and verse 7, we circled the word 
for. And those were the reasons why. But the ideas that follow from these why statements or these because statements are rooted in the truth that is found in the scriptures, the truth that is in the Bible. The psalmist has submitted himself to saying, what I find about God, how God reveals himself to me through the Bible, that is the God that I worship. And he roots himself in that, and he submits to its authority. And the same thing can be said of us. We read our Bibles, we come in here, and we hear a message that is rooted in the truth. Now, I will admit, this is especially hard in some parts of the Bible. There are a lot of extremely confusing and um, pieces and stories that just do not seem to make sense. But I'll assure you that as you come together to this place and as you genuinely submit yourself to understanding what the Word of God is saying before you try to put God in your own box, He will reveal Himself to you as you continue building those bricks of foundation through gathering together and hearing His Word. Number three, worship takes practice. How many mornings do you wake up and you say, I do not want to go to a worship service this morning. It is raining. It is cold. I want to lay in my bed. I do not really want to go. This past, I'd say for the past nine months, I've been um, running to try to stay in shape. And last fall, I was um, pretty disciplined. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I was out the door, 7 o'clock sharp, running. And I can tell you that 80% of those days, I did not want to get out of my bed. I had no desire to put on my running shoes and go out, especially on a cold October morning. But I did. And I can confidently stand here and tell you that I did not ever once regret having gone on that run once I got back. The same thing is true for worship. There are going to be a lot of times where we do not feel like coming to a service of worship. But if we, if we pull ourselves up, if we come to this place, if we put ourselves into what is happening, if we're ascribing our ultimate value to the Lord, I can assure you that you are not going to regret coming here and hearing what sort of vision of peace and rest he is giving for your life. And finally, well, maybe we'll go back to worship takes practice. I think there's a lot more things we could say about practice. Um, maybe we could talk about some of the practical implications of what we see going on. Um, I have one more example. I'm blank, and let me check. Ah, uh, yes. This is good. You ever have it where you're like, you're going and you just lose it mid-train? Sorry, I'll, I'll keep going. Okay, if, what, if one of our big desires is that we don't really want to wake up to come to worship, the polar opposite side may be that we want to come to this place and we're really excited to be here and we want to be worship professionals. We think that when we walk into this place, it should be easy to have hands lifted high, to know all the songs, to sing them aloud, to really get into the spirit of what's happening. But then a lot of times we might leave or might think, well, I didn't really feel it this morning. I didn't really, I didn't really get anything from it. But if life were really like that, 
if life were really just to walk into anywhere and pick it up immediately and be a professional, I could sit down at that piano and become Ben Folds without ever practicing. Even the people who are professionals at their trade, who are professional musicians or whatever, practice over and over and over again because it's part of their discipline. Worship is a discipline that takes practice. Even if you've been doing it for years, even if you've been in a church your entire life, you are never going to become a worship professional because that's not what worship is about. We come in here and we practice and we give it all to God because we're ascribing him ultimate value. He is priority number one in our lives. And finally, let's move on to worship is done with everything. Heart, mind, and will. This psalm opens up by saying, come Let us shout for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. The Hebrew is actually a bit more explicit in the first first, um, line. It says, come, let us give a ringing cry to the Lord. It is not a passive, quiet hymn. When people are walking in, and they're... If you're going to raise a ringing cry, you have hands fist-pumped, you are shouting, you are excited, you are ready. It is a heartfelt expression of something going on in your life. You are pouring out of your heart with an emotion. But emotion, the heartfelt emotion, cannot be just what it is because there also has to be some sort of foundation in your mind. The psalmist gives us verse 3 and verse 7 to say why. It is a rational part to think, who is God for me? Why would I worship him? I see his hand with me when I feel an overwhelming sense of peace when I'm about to do something that seems totally daunting. I know that he's beside me in these tough trials of life. I maybe can't always explain it, but I know that he's there. And I believe wholeheartedly that his son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins, that he is my savior. There is a mental, rational association that we give to God, and it pours out of our hearts through expressions of praise and adoration. And as we see those two things coming together, we'll notice that our whole will is transformed. And what I mean by will is our whole being, the part of us that makes an active difference in our lives. We will not be the same. Our will is transformed because of who God is, and we express that with everything that we have in our being. And the last part of this part of worshiping with everything we have is that this psalm gives us the postures for worship. Because I can't imagine giving a ringing cry with hands down at my side. And I can't imagine coming before the Lord in humility, like verse 6 says, without being on my knees. The psalmist says, hands lifted high in singing praise, on your knees in prayer, whether it be publicly or privately, singing with all you have, knowing that the Lord is your God, and living a transformed life because of him. You worship with everything you have. You pour forth out of your soul. Psalm 95, the great teaching text of the gospel, of the Bible, about what we do when we come into this place. When you start reassigning your ultimate value to God, 
when you start taking inventory of what he has done for you, when you start seeing how he is transforming your lives, you're going to start tearing down the walls of selfishness that you've been building up for so long. And he's going to empower you to lay down sidewalks of selflessness because he is by your side. He will forgive you when you wrong him. He's going to satisfy you when you get him. We worship with everything that we have. In the words of one of my favorite worship leaders, worship is giving it all to God because, man, he gave it all for us. Will you join me in prayer?